0: I was asked to uh, step in here in, well, near the end of the series that's been running on the life of Moses, and uh, as happens toward the ends of series, uh, there's kind of a little bit of jumping going on here. Uh, We're going to be in Numbers 13 and 14 today, Uh, but I want to back up first and set the stage a little bit of how we got to this point. I should probably explain who we is also, uh, because essentially we are here in the place of the Israelites. And at this point, it has been eh, about a year and a half since the Exodus. Um, We have had the exodus, which comes on the heels of a whole bunch of plagues. And we are leaving um, Egypt with some promises. I want to back up, actually, all the way to where this really gets started, which is the promise made to Abraham. Abraham wanders around Canaan for his whole life, and he is promised. It's his, eventually. That promise is repeated to his son, to his son's son. Actually, Abraham gets a long version of the promise back in Genesis 15, in which God says, now your descendants are going to own this land, But first, they are going to be slaves in another country. And then, I, God, will bring them out and give them this land. So they've gone down into Egypt. Moses, at the burning bush, gets just that promise repeated. Moses, you're going to go lead your people out of Egypt and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a very rich land. And so we have the plagues ending in the Passover, and Israel comes out of Egypt. It takes them about two and a half months wandering around to actually get down to Horeb, Mount Sinai. And there, what happens? Well, first, God speaks to the nation. And the basic Israelite reaction to God speaking directly to them is, "Uh, Moses, you go talk to God. And we'll stay over here. You can come tell us what he says because it's really kind of frightening dealing with God. They spend about, well, the next three months with Moses taking two 40-day treks up on the mountain to meet with God. Uh, The reason there is a second trip up the mountain to meet with God is because of what happens in between. Not six weeks after God speaks directly to the nation, they have a cow. (laughs) That is to say, they make a golden calf and say, oh, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. How should we say God is not pleased? Um... There's this three months uh, with Moses on the mountain. They spend the rest of the year, we've got at this point about six months or so left in the year, making the tabernacle. So they finally set up the tabernacle. You should be hearing some echoes here from um, some earlier sermons. And they set up the tabernacle and... We get through the rest of Exodus. We get through the entire book of Leviticus. In terms of skipping things, you'll notice that we didn't have any sermons out of Leviticus. <laughs> but um, and we're into Numbers. Now we call the book Numbers because it starts off with a census. Actually, the Jews call the book In the Wilderness, which is actually how the book starts, is In the Wilderness. Um, And after a couple more months with the tabernacle set up, God finally says it is time to break camp and head for the promised land. Takes them a couple of months to work their way north. There are a few more incidents we'll skip over. Um, it's one of the nice things about, uh, reading the story of Israel is there always are incidents. Um, but they get to the border. And so we're in the wilderness of Paran at a place called Kadesh. And that's where we're going to pick up with our text. As we're working through the text there are two things to kind of keep an ear out for. One is promises. Because, hey, we're going to have more promises. The other is listen for the things that we've heard before. So, beginning at the chapter... The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Did you catch the promise? I am giving this land to the Israelites. Skipping on down. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Parenthetically, it was about the time of the beginning of the grape harvest. So we're actually kind of here in late summer. Now, we think spies going into the land. This is going to be a military kind of intelligence gathering operation. But do you notice how much of what Moses tells them to get is actually more like what a real estate agent would want to collect. What are the properties of this land? Is this because the properties of this land are in doubt? Not really, because it's been promised. This is a land flowing (laughs) in milk and honey. This is a good land. So they head off. And they do the tour. Skipping down to verse 26 there. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. So we get show and tell. And and show-and-tell includes a single cluster of grapes so large that two of them had to carry it on a pole between them. Okay. And they bring back other fruits. Hey, it's a good land. This was not oversold. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Anak. These are the giants. Okay. Then Caleb, remember he's one of the twelve, silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Why can we certainly do it? We got a promise, right? But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. This is the oldest known occurrence of sour grapes. (laughs) It's not a good land. It's a terrible land. We don't really want to go there because it's scary. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Have we heard this before? Now, remember what Egypt was like? At the burning bush, God said, I have heard my people's groaning in Egypt. They don't like Egypt. (laughs) Let's go back to Egypt. We're scared. Let's go back to Egypt. Or instead of going through all this... How about if we just die right here? That would be better. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Yeah, it's scary. But, remember this God? You've heard of him? You've heard from him before? Yeah, we can do this. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Anybody got a sense of deja vu? Where have we heard this before? Oh, yeah, with that cow. God said, Well, we've been up here on the mountain chatting. Those people you brought out of Egypt, Moses, they made a cow. How about I get rid of them? And in place of the Israelites, we'll have the Mosesites. Good plan. Moses' answer, all right. No. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Who's Moses concerned about? Concerned about God. God, this is not going to be good for you to do this. That should sound familiar too. Because that's exactly the same argument that Moses made at Sinai when God made the same proposal. But Moses actually gets to continue his argument by quoting God to God. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Where's that quote come from? Do you remember it? Before he heads up the mountain the second time, Moses says, okay, God, you said you go with the people. You've said you speak to me face to face. Show me your glory. We're back in Exodus 33 here. And God says, well, I can't really show you my full glory because you won't be able to take it. It'll kill you. However, I can let you see my backside. I will put you in a break in the rock, cover you, and as I pass by, declare I'm the Lord. slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion, but not leaving the guilty unpunished. So, how does that work for an argument with God? God says, okay. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you ask. But he doesn't stop there. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the earth, you want an oath? <laughs> that is an oath. Not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. God adds to his oath to give the land to the descendants of Abraham that he's not giving it to these descendants of Abraham. But, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of the grumbling Israelites. So tell them. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. What did they say? In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You said it would be better if you died in the wilderness. I can arrange that. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He pardons. He does not annihilate them. But that Pardon does not remove the consequences of their acts. And remember God's declaration back to Moses, visiting the sins of the fathers on the children? That is the consequences? As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. Good. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. The children are not going to be plunder, but they are going to spend 40 years as nomadic herders, which is not quite as nice as getting to settle down in a land flowing with milk and honey. This should be the end of this episode. However, I have to read one more, two more verses here. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Appropriate reaction. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord has promised. Surely we have sinned. Our bad. Okay, God, we're ready to go now. How do you think that goes? Not so well. The Amalekites and the Canaanites come down and drive them back. So, in fact, they do end up turning south, and for 40 more years the nation of Israel wanders around the Sinai Peninsula until everybody, and note everybody includes Moses and Aaron, until everybody but Joshua and Caleb has died. Okay. What are we supposed to get out of this story? We don't actually have quite the same circumstances. We don't have Moses. Now, Moses is really exceptional. You read all through the Old Testament, you've got all these prophets who speak for God. But they don't do it the way Moses does. Moses is the only one who objectively visibly to, or actually audibly, to third parties who may be observing converses verbally with God. We don't see any prophet with that relationship. So that means the Israelites do have a slight advantage on us in that it's quite clear to them what God wants them to do. There's no inference involved. There's no, hmm, maybe God wants us to go conquer this land. No, it's God said, it's time to go conquer this land. But if we put ourselves in their shoes, what do we find? Why the sour grapes? It's scary. It's risky. You ever hear that thought running through your brain? This is just kind of scary. Maybe I should just stick with what I'm used to. You know, maybe, maybe wandering around the desert isn't so bad after all. Maybe slavery in Egypt isn't all that bad. Maybe sticking with what I'm familiar with, comfortable with, maybe that's what I should do. Even when I'm really pretty sure God is trying to tell me to move. You know, it's, it's real easy to look at Israel, especially Israel in the wilderness, and think, boy, those were fickle, stupid people. I would never do that. You know, the more I read the story of Israel... the more I feel like maybe I wouldn't do that. Maybe I wouldn't even do that well. We go from feeling high and confident to trembling. If we look, though, at the few exceptional voices in here. Now, without a doubt, Moses' response to God's proposal to obliterate the Israelites is partly that he doesn't want to see all these people killed. But his real concern... God, this is not who you are, God. This is not good for you, God. Moses is concerned less for Moses than, in his better moments at least, he's concerned for God. And Caleb and Joshua, what makes them different? They actually seem to remember that there's some promises involved. And not just that there are some promises involved, but they remember who the promiser is. Yeah, these people are scary. They're powerful. Their cities are fortified. But God has told us to possess the land. If God has promised us the land, God is going to make it work. not because we're such a fearsome army, but because we've seen God work. He will keep his promises. When God says yes, We need to say yes. Also, when God says, not now, we need to take that seriously too. There are times he says no. There are times when even though we get our act together, the consequences of our past choices don't magically go away. We still have them. We still bear them. But that doesn't mean God isn't merciful and faithful. Would you bow with me? God, we know that you have all the power, that you are in charge, and we know that you are merciful. Father, give us the Spirit that was in. Caleb, and Joshua. Help us to hear your promise. And help us to trust in that promise. Too often we... Act like the rest of the Israelites. Father, for your sake, for the sake of your Son, forgive and remake us in His image. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, I want to say thank you, Carrie. Appreciate you sharing with us today, uh, there in the prayer, uh, at the end. That was, that's the crux of the text and what you've revealed to us today. It's a conversation of trust. You know, the reality is, is there will be times in our own lives where, um, our perceptions of reality conflict with the promises of God, right? And, uh, it's a conversation of trust. So may we be a people that leave, uh, in a posture of trust toward God.